Aren't you glad that the Lord loves you? Aren't you thankful for his love, that he shed his love abroad in our hearts? And that's what the Christmas season is all about, just being so grateful that God so loved us, so loved the world. That means he loved you and me in our condition, in the shape we were in. How many like we were a mess? You were a total mess before Jesus found you. And yet he has loved us so much that he gave Jesus as the perfect Lamb of God to love us and bless him. Just put your hands together and thank the Lord for that today, would you? Thank you, you, musicians. I am uh, very thankful that my mother has come to Texas to spend hopefully a few weeks with us, if I can get her to stay long enough. She's a little funny about that. She'd rather be home, but, um, and she doesn't want to do this, but I want you to stand. I want everybody to see. She told me last night, don't have me stand. While she's here, and I'm going to get in trouble for telling you this, we will celebrate her 88th birthday. Stand up, Mom. Come on. How many hope you look that good when you're 88? Yeah. She's, um, she's a pretty spectacular lady, and I'm so thankful for the heritage God has given me and my kids and my, my family. And um, she was a dear friend of Jerry Lou, Becky's mom. And my mom, this has been planned for my mother to come this period of time for quite a while, and she was hoping to spend time. They had a mutual admiration society between the two of them. And... Um, Jerry was convinced she had the world's finest son-in-law, and she did. And, <laughs> and uh, my mom is convinced she's got the world's finest daughter-in-law, and she does. And so thankful for that. <clears throat> I want to north wind an idea with you this morning, and you're going to say, what on earth does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a phrase we use or a term we use with the staff sometimes when we are trying to just drop an idea out, and we want to begin to sprinkle it into the conversation because it's something typically that's coming that is going to be coming somewhere in our church life, and, and we don't want it to be a, a surprise when it comes. And so we, we t- say, let's, let's begin to north wind that idea. Let the zephyr breeze blow it in. And here's the idea that's, that I, I, want, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm calling for. A few weeks ago, the Lord began to deal with me personally on something and call me to something that I, I knew he was telling me I needed to do. And then I began to sense um, in the last few days, actually the last couple of weeks, that this thing he was requiring of me was something that was to not only be for me, but that it was to be for the church. And that is this. On the first week of, of uh, 2016, which is coming in just a few weeks as we blow this across us this morning, I'm calling for a church-wide fast for the first week of January, which would be January 4 through 9. And you might say, Pastor Dan, why are you doing that? Well, I'm going to tell you why. I need the Lord. We need the Lord. And I obviously, you, uh, I'm asking those of you who will join us, those of you who are committed believers of Bethesda Church, those of you who believe living by the mandates of Scripture, uh, you will customize your fast according to that which is appropriate for you. It may be fasting a meal a day. Some of you may want to fast the whole week. Some of you may do whatever is appropriate for you. But I am asking you to join me in the first, setting aside the first week of, of January and consecrating that time to the Lord. Here's the thinking. Here's my thought behind it. It's never an inappropriate time to do that, but here's specifically my thinking. Like I said, we need the Lord. We need the Lord in our church. I believe it's important that we consecrate the time so that we make, we declare the statement for ourselves And we make it clear in the heavens that we are completely committed to the will of God for our our lives, corporately and individually. And certainly the day and time in which we live is extremely critical. We need the Lord in our church. We want to be sure we are saying to Him, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in me, in us, 
as we move forward into this year of 2016. So that hopefully we would uh, divest ourselves of any distractions that would be there. And we would be saying, Lord, we are solely committed to you. We are asking you, Lord, realign anything within us that has gotten uh, out of alignment in the process of our journey thus far. Would you realign it as we commit ourselves and we focus ourselves on you? We need the Lord in our church. We need his direction, his guidance, so that we are walking in obedience to him. How many believe walking in obedience is an important thing? We need the Lord in our nation. One of the reasons that I'm calling for Bethesda to fast is this is these are critical days in which we live. We're facing an election year. It is a critical election. And so because of that, how many want God's will for the leadership of our country? Is anybody with me this morning? Yeah, don't get quiet on me now. This is not the time to get quiet on me. We need the Lord's help in saying, Lord, we're calling on you to guide and direct our nation, even the election that's going to take place this year. We need the Lord in our nation for His protection for the interesting, if not critical, days that we are living in today. Are you hearing me? We need His protection. We don't know what's going to happen. And unless the Lord protects us, only God knows what could take place. I'm not here to stir up fear amongst us. I'm just saying, I want to be on the side that says, Lord, who is on the Lord's side? I want to be on your side. And I want to make it clear from the expression of my heart, and I want to be involved with a church that the expression of our heart is, unto you and you alone do we commit ourselves. We need the Lord in our church. We need the Lord in our nation. And I'm pretty sure that you, like me, you need the Lord in your personal life. We all face issues. Every one of us walked in the door today with issues and things going on. It's, it's sometimes comical to me when somebody walks, says to me, well, Pastor, I'm not coming to church right now because I'm embarrassed of what's happened in my life and this is going on. And when I walk in, everybody looks at me funny. And I don't say it, but I want to say, sweetheart, they're not even thinking about you when they look. They're just looking at you funny, you know. They're so taken up with their own issues that they're, they're probably not looking at you funny. It's probably not about you. But I have people say that to me from time to time. But the truth is we all have issues that we're facing. We all have battles that, that we are fighting. And I don't know about you, I need the Lord. Do you? And so therefore, Bethesda, I am calling for the first week of January, January 4th through the 9th, that you will join me in consecrating that time to the Lord and committing to a season of fast, a period of fast, according to that which is appropriate for you in that process. No one's going to be policing it. You're not going to fill out a card, you know, nothing like that. I'm just asking out of the integrity of your own walk with the Lord that you will join us, you know, in that, in that fast. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was talking about a certain thing with you as a congregation, and I mentioned that I think the enemy has like a top ten list, the things that he tries to pull over on us. I, I can't recall at the moment what that particular thing was, but I know I thought that's probably in his top ten because I, I believe that he has his common go-to things that he grabs to, uh, to try to uh, assail us and bring against us as believers. Well, there's another one that I want to mention that... Um, that I'll tell you why it's, it's on my mind today, and that is this. There are thoughts that go through our mind. I know what it was the other day. I was talking about suicidal thoughts. Sometimes people have that, and they think, I'm the first Christian who's ever had a suicidal thought. No, that's in the top ten list of the things that the enemy tries to throw on folks at all times. There's another one I think is in the top ten list, and that is this. A thought goes through our mind that says, God has forgotten me. <laughs> And a hush comes over the room. I think that's a common thing that the enemy tries to play on us to say, God, God has forgotten me. Somehow in the process of your journey, in the process of dealing with the things that you're dealing with, and you've prayed and you've asked things to change, and it hasn't happened in the timing that you were hoping that it would, it's very, very easy to say, particularly when there's suffering involved, particularly when there's pain involved in that with which you are dealing, you will tend to say, God has 
forgotten me, or you'll at least wonder if God has forgotten you. And I don't mind giving exposure to these things because the next time it comes to your mind, and it will, I want you to be able to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's on his top line. That's just one of the normal things that the enemy tries to do to us. But I'm so thankful that I can stand here as a believer and say, but greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. No weapon formed me is, against me is going to prosper because I'm a child of God. And devil, do whatever you're going to do. I see that. I recognize that. And come on, you can't do any better than that? I hope that will be your posture the next time he tries to throw one of those things at you. It was um, a few weeks ago that, you know, my, my, uh, my mother-in-law in her last days, she was so anxious to go to heaven. It was, it was just really something to see. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who was more anxious to go to heaven than my, my mother-in-law was. And... Um, so much so, and, and some of the ladies and folks who were attending her heard her say what I'm about to tell you, even as I heard it, because they, they told me about it. Um, typically, I would go in the morning to see her, and then would join Becky in the evening. We'd spend some time with her. And one morning, I, I stopped by, uh, and I, said, I walked in. I said, Jerry, how are you doing today? And she looked at me with almost a sense that, well, not almost, with a sense of disappointment. She said, well, I'm still here. And she'd say, I want to be there, but I'm still here. I said, I know you, I know you do. And I'd say, you ready? I don't know how much more ready I could be, she would say. She was so ready. And so literally, it was so much on her mind at one point that she said to me, I walked in, she said, well, I'm still, still here. She said, Dan, do you think God has forgotten me? And of course, it broke my heart to hear hear her say that, and I, I could easily say, no, he's not forgotten you. But again, this is a question about the delay in God's timing. And it's one of the questions that the enemy lays on all of us at one time or another. And the reason I think I particularly bring it up right now is some people battle with this at Christmas time. It may be because of loneliness or, or, or the particular family dynamic that you are involved in or lack thereof at this time. And people begin to ask, has God forgotten me? But whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or 30 days, you probably know what it is to repeatedly go before the throne of God with a specific request and then experience the delay of God and the obvious question, has God forgotten me? We're going to go to the Word of the Lord in just a minute. I'm going to draw your attention to a certain gentleman. But before I do, I want to just remind you of something. I think we've mentioned things like this before. There's two ways that you can see yourself. You can either see yourself through, as a, through a photograph or through a mirror. The photograph, that's the glamour shot of you. That's the one that you want everyone to see and to know. That's the new Facebook uh, profile picture that you have. That's the one where you've got on your finest clothes and they take a photograph of you with air blowing through your hair and it makes you all look, makes you look fine. You know, that's the one that you like. And that's what we want to look like. How many are with me today? And that's the way we want to be seen, and that's the way we want people to believe that we look when we get up out of bed in the morning. Am I, am I right? But that's not our reality. It's the mirror that shows where we really are in our present condition. And the problem comes in when we begin to believe the photograph more than we believe the mirror. The mirror shows you exactly really what's going on right now. The photograph shows you what you want to look like or what you want it to be, especially in my case, I hope that they have airbrushed it and photoshopped it and made me look a whole lot better than I actually am. How many can say amen to that today? And we can easily mess up, I can easily mess up, when I start to believe my photograph of a few good moments and forget that the mirror shows me exactly where I'm at right now, which is exactly why the book of James, this is confirmed in the book of James when it tells us that the Bible is a mirror and we hold it up. It's why we need to be in the Word of God every day to look and see the mirror of God's Word. So when you read the Bible, you see exactly what's going on inside of you. You see the truth about where your heart is. And if we don't keep a regular watch, dear church, over this heart of ours, it is amazing what can take place. Because sometimes we discover, hear me, that our heart is not as righteous as our words. You still love me? 
No, you don't. You still love me? Which is exactly why Proverbs 4.23 is there to constantly remind us of this. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And that's why I'm so thankful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's in A.W. Tozier's book called Root of the Righteous. That he has a part in there called The Hunger for the Wild. And in there he says, you don't have to do anything to a garden for weeds to grow. It's the garden that is unattended where junk will begin to grow up. That's why as a Christian, you have to constantly attend to this heart. Whether you've been saved for 30 days, 30 minutes, 30 years, there's always junk that wants to come back in. That's why we are challenged to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought because we will tend to believe the photograph and not believe the mirror. Someone was talking to me recently about trusting in the Lord and how as seasoned Christians we ought to find it easier the older we get to trust in God. And my response was simply this. I would love to be able to tell all of you today that I have graduated from that school. I would love to tell you that my heart is not prone to wander, but that's not the truth about me or really any of us in the room. Because I know how on any given day... But for the grace of God, I could have all kinds of questions, particularly when the enemy is throwing out his top ten at me. And I have to return again and again to the place of trusting God. Have I trusted God in the past? Yes. The answer to that is yes. Do I have every reason to trust Him? That's another yes. Do I plan on trusting Him in the future? Absolutely. But I can be overwhelmed by the circumstances of today and have to trust and make a deliberate choice, a deliberate choice to trust God with today's issues. That is true for me. I can't simply relax and say, oh, I've got my God-trusting diploma or I have my degree in God-trusting and I'm good now. There's no more effort required. I have to be careful in my own life to see that the photograph and the mirror are reflecting the same thing. Because just like you, I'm prone to all the stuff that that can come. And I have to begin to say, Lord, this feels weird today. Here's a new one. I've not been down this path before. This is unprecedented for me. These are not the seeds that I have sown. I am reaping something that I know I did not plant. I know that's where I am. But I'm going to choose today, regardless of how overwhelming this is, I'm going to choose to trust in God. Is anybody with me today at all? All of these random ideas that appear that way so far began to come together for me recently when I was reading through the book of Esther. And I want you to turn there with me this morning. I'll give you a minute to find it. I'm sure it's not one you go to every week. The book of Esther. And I was greatly challenged by the life of one particular man in this book. And that's whose attention I'm drawing you to today. This man seemed to be completely void of the disparity between his photograph and his mirror. And in the reading of this narrative, it is apparent that this man concerns himself only with that to which God has called him with no particular regard for return on his investment. When he gives himself, he doesn't seem to be concerned about what is going to come back to him. No regard at all. This is not a man who gives a Christmas present just waiting to see what you're going to give back to him, assuming because he gave you something, you're going to give something back. With this man, his photograph and his mirror are the same thing, which is a challenge to me, and I hope it's a challenge to you today to begin to consider, is your photograph and your mirror the same, or is there a considerable disparity there? And this man is found in the book of Esther, which is the only book in the Bible where I happen to notice the name God is not mentioned, but God is all over this book, as you're going to see in just a moment. So look at this with me for just a few minutes, and let's see if the mirror doesn't begin to show us something about ourselves. For if we will allow it, the narrative in this book of Esther can become a mirror whereby the Lord is saying to us, you know what, here's what you need to see about yourself. Honey, those hairs are out of place. You need to wipe off your face. You need to do whatever. You got lipstick on your teeth. Whatever it is, going to show us something as we look in the mirror. And let's look at this starting in Esther chapter 2. 
By the way, if for any reason, uh, whether you are new as a Christian or this is uh, not a place you have been to in Scripture, I, I, um, I admonish you, go home this afternoon and read these ten short chapters. The, the whole of the story is most interesting. Now, this story takes place in Persia where the Jews are in exile. And I want us to read together Esther chapter 2. Put it up for me. Let me see if we can look at it. One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate. So we figure out it's a guy named Mordecai, and he works for the king. We got that. Two of the king's eunuchs, go home and study that, and I doubt you gentlemen will volunteer for that job. Two of the king's eunuchs, Big Thana, Big Thana is the way it actually is pronounced. Some of your versions say Big Thin, but this is the Persian way, I understand. Big Thana and Tiresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. I'm going to call them disgruntled employees, okay? For whatever reason, these guys who were guards at the king's private quarters got ticked off at the boss, and they don't know what he's done to them, but they've decided whatever this is, it's bad enough that they're going to kill him. Let's go on to the next screen. But Mordecai heard about the plot. Many versions say overheard, and here's the way I see this in my mind. There's two guys standing uh, by the king's quarters there, and they're, you know, they're upset over, well, he did, the, did, well, did you know he did this, and this happened, that happened. And they're talking, and I can't verify this by Scripture, but here's what I think by some of my study that is, or it's at least inferred, which I think adds to the interest of the story, and that is this. My guess is they were speaking in some other language other than the common language of the day, assuming nobody would understand what they're saying. But a little bit of study will tell you that Mordecai was known to speak and understand up to as many as, as, many as 70 languages. And I think it's interesting, I think it's just like the Lord to plant somebody there who understands what they're saying. You're not getting this yet today. Just about the time you think you are hiding what you don't want anybody else to find out about you, when you're communicating it in another language, somebody who speaks 70 languages and knows that language is going to be standing there to reveal exactly what has been coming from the darkness of your heart. I feel the love in the room today. My goodness, goodness. Let's get back to this. So Mordecai heard about the plot, and he gave the information to Queen Esther, which, who happened to be his cousin, as many of you know. So then what did she do? She told the king about it, and she gave cousin Morty credit for the report. Guess how I found out about this? Let's go on. When an investigation was made, you've got to verify when an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were, let's just say it did not go well for them, okay? It did not go well for them. And here's the important part. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. And that's it, primarily. That's the story. Here's Mordecai, who's at the gate. He overhears a conversation in a language he understood. Two other employees of the king are devising a plot to kill their boss. Mordecai hears it, tells his cousin Esther, who is the queen. Esther tells the king, and they recorded that incident in the king's book of record. Now, when you move on through the book and you get to chapter 3, you discover how a guy named Haman gets promoted by the king to be over all of the other officials in the empire. Let's call him the supervisor. He's the supervisor over all the others. And to help establish his authority, Haman, the supervisor, the king commanded that all the employees should bow down to Haman to show him respect. It's tough to get people to bow down to you these days. Did you know that? I'm still working with the staff, and it's not going well. They're not bowing down. It's not going well. So the queen's cousin, Mordecai, who works for the king, guess what? He won't bow. He doesn't bow down to the supervisor, Haman. And so guess what happens? Haman decides he wants to kill Mordecai. You don't bow down to me, you're going to pay a price for that. And not only that, well, the story gets worse in a minute, all right? So that's where we are. Mordecai is used by God to thwart and expose the plan of disgruntled employees who want to kill the king. 
Time goes on, and the king promotes a guy named Haman to be supervisor to whom all the other officials are supposed to bow down. The queen's cousin, Mordecai, refuses to bow, which angers Haman, and now Haman wants Mordecai wiped out, and he develops a plan, along with his wife, Zeresh, talking about Haman, to to impale Mordecai on a tall 75-foot pole, according to the word. That's what he's going to do with Mordecai. And I think there's a message for us here today, church, and I'm going to try to get you out of here early. I make no promises. I know I've said that often, and I've messed that up, so just pray the Lord helps me. Move on with me to chapter 6, Esther chapter 6. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. Anybody ever had a sleepless night? Raise your hand if you've ever had a sleepless night. Have you ever raised children? Okay. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so that he could read it. Has a sleepless night, and guess what? There was no internet. There was no ESPN. There's no cable news network. There's nothing. And so the best way to get sleepy again is to have someone read history to him. All right? So he ordered the book of record to be read to him. Now, This would be the same book in which it is recorded about Mordecai thwarting the plan to kill this king. Verse 2 says of chapter 6, in those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. So what reward... Or what recognition did we ever give to Mordecai for this that he did, the king asked. And his attendants replied, well, we didn't do anything. We didn't, uh, nothing has been done. Now, before we go further here, stay with me. Before we go further, we must understand the timeline. Chapter 2 that we read a little while ago, when the disgruntled employees did, you know, what they, their thing and Mordecai discovered, that takes place in 478 B.C., Hang on to that to do the math with me. That's when Mordecai protected the king by exposing and thwarting the plan of the disgruntled employees. Now, we must remember, uh, uh, when understanding the timeline of the Bible, there's some things we have to understand about chronology. We tend to read a chapter and make assumptions that we're dealing with only hours or maybe days, short period of time. Reality, it's it's very entirely possible you could be reading a chapter, go to the next chapter, and it's 100 years later. So you always need to know, when you're putting it in context, what the timeline is. And simple study can help you do that. Well, here's what happens in this situation. Stay with me. Chapter 2 took place in 478 B.C. Remember, because it's B.C., we're going to count backwards. Chapter 6 took place in 473 B.C. So from the time that Mordecai exposes the plot of the disgruntled officials who want to kill the king in 478 B.C. to chapter 6, the sleepless night now that the king has, that's 473 B.C. So before God brings honor to Mordecai, before God reveals this story, before God shows what Mordecai did, it was five whole years. I seriously doubt that Mordecai was spending every day of those five years, anxiously awaiting for his honor and recognition to come. I I just don't think Mordecai is saying, did anyone let the king know what I did for him back in 478 B.C.? I don't think Mordecai was looking in the mail for anything with royal stationery on it. I I don't think he's saying, has there been any mention of a parade on my behalf? Is Is anyone coming up with something? I don't think any of that was there because it appears from Scripture that Mordecai was the real deal. That there was no disparity between his photograph and his mirror. He did that which was right. He was loyal to his authority. He was protective of his authority. He didn't appear to be needing credit or public attention for it at all. Because Mordecai seemed to be absolutely content in knowing this. God knows what's going on and God has it all covered. Can I just stop here a moment to say, folks, there is so much about life. We just simply have to roll off onto Jesus. Please hear me say that today. There are so many things that take place 
And we have a tendency to want to swing at every pitch, don't we? We want to correct this, and we want to correct that, and we're going to set this straight, and we're going to set that straight. He said this, and she said this, and I am the one designed to get it all together. There is so much about our lives, particularly those things that come to us that don't please us or suit us or according to our plan, we just have to roll it off on the Lord because He's the one that we can trust. Would you please say amen to that today? Mordecai knew that God had it all covered. But if I were honest with you today, I think most of us reach those places in life where we believe something should have happened. We're convinced something should have taken place for us, and we get worried that God forgets. We get concerned that God doesn't see or that He doesn't remember. But I want to tell you this. If you get nothing else from what I say this morning, I want you to know what's absolutely true of God is this. God sees, God knows, and God rewards. Say it with me. God sees, God does see. He sees everything that you and I have done, and the minute I say that, we tend to think of all the bad things. No, I want you to know God sees the good things that we have done as well. God knows the intention of our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows the why. He knows when we are misunderstood in what we have done. He knows why you sing, dear singer. He knows why we worship, worshiper. He knows why we play instruments. He knows why we come to church. He knows why we come to prayer service. You knew I'd get that in there somewhere, didn't you? And a sleepless night comes five years later. Five years later, and God goes, now is the time to take care of this situation. Not the next day, not the day before, not while Mordecai is looking in the mail for something with royal stationery to commend him for what he's done. God in his sovereignty says, this is the right time, and this is how we're going to make this happen. Because church, God sees, God knows, and God rewards. You see, in between chapter 2 and chapter 6, we've mentioned about this guy named Haman who had been put up as the, the supervisor right under the king. And what takes place between 2 and 6 is the potential of the first holocaust. That was potentially what was going to happen. Haman, the supervisor, who wanted to kill Mordecai simply because he would not bow down to him, his anger became so intense that he asked for the king's edict to not only kill Mordecai, but also wipe out the whole of the Jewish people who were settled in the empire of King Xerxes. In essence, Haman became the first Hitler in world history. So what happens is this. Haman got his posse together to cast lots those lots were called Purim, P-U-R-I-M, to determine the best day and month that they would destroy all the Jews in the Persian kingdom. I mean, this guy's mad that Mordecai wouldn't bow down. He doesn't only want to kill him. He wants to kill the whole Jewish people. By the way, another study point for those of you who take notes and do this, go look up Feast of Purim or Purim Festival and Google that today and let that be part of your study and see that how it takes place yet today. So I don't think Mordecai spent any time looking for a letter from the king to honor him when his people were about to be destroyed. I think he had different focus completely. How intense must it be when you know that your nation, your people, your family, everything that you've known is about to be destroyed. If you've ever heard testimonies of Holocaust survivors and what it was like to lose their loved ones, their entire family in mass. You know something about that intensity. So in between 2 and 6, there's a holocaust that is about to take place. And as a man named Haman was rising up against them. But can I just say this loud and clear to all of us today? And I want you to apply this to your personal life. God has perfect timing. God has perfect timing. Even if that comes as an irritant to you today for me to say that because you're in the delay period, 
you're in the waiting period, I'm reminding you today, God has perfect timing. He knows when to give you a sleepless night. God knows when someone is supposed to be reading the King's Chronicles. God knows what you did five years ago. He knows what you did ten years ago. Because not only did this King Xerxes have a book, our king has a book as well. And here's what you have to remember. The king has a sleepless night five years later. And it happens to be when they are simply weeks away from what would be a potential holocaust. Weeks away from the entire Jewish nation being wiped out. King Xerxes has a sleepless night. Haman has set up the gallows or the pole for Mordecai and all the Jews. Everything is in place to move forward with the annihilation of the Jewish people. And suddenly, the king says in verse 3, after someone has read him his own chronicles of what had taken place five years before when Mordecai protected him. He says to this, What reward or recognition did we ever give to Mordecai for the time when he stopped those bozos from trying to kill me? It's worded a little different than King James. The king asked that. Did we ever send him a thank you card? Did we send him a fruit basket? Did we do anything to reward that man for what he, how he protected me? And his attendants reply, oh, no, no, sir. Nothing has been done for him. And the king says, that ain't right. That is not right. We need to honor Mordecai because, church, God has not forgotten. So let's read further and see something that only the Lord could have orchestrated, and this is so good. Give me verse 4. So the king says, who is that in the outer court? As it happened, Haman, the supervisor who wants to kill Mordecai, had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole, 75 foot, that he had prepared. Let's go. So the attendants replied to the king, oh, uh, that's, that's Haman in the outer court. The king says, bring him in here. So Haman came in and the king says, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman's thinking to himself, well, well. I'm the supervisor. Obviously, he likes me, thinks I do a great job. Whom would the king wish to honor more than me? That's what he's thinking. So he replies, <clears throat> if the king wishes to honor someone, I, here's, here's what I'm thinking would be a good way to do that. He should bring out one of the king's own royal robes. Yes, yes, yes. As well as a horse that the king himself has ridden. One, you know, the one with the royal emblem on the head. That's what we need. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let him see. And he's just coming up with how great this is going to be. And let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. And have the officials shout as they go. This, and he's just getting better. This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Oh, yeah, this is good. Awesome, the king says to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse, and do just as you have said for Mordecai. The Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Oh, and by the way, all that stuff was great. I like that whole idea. It's a great plan. Don't leave anything out of it. Let's do just as you have suggested. Church, God has not forgotten you. And so suddenly, here's the man who wants to kill Mordecai and all of his people. And he's been instructed by the king, put, off the, king, put the king's robe on Mordecai, place Mordecai on the king's horse, lead him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does to honor someone. And that is because of this, what I'm trying to get so across to you, because God sees, God knows, and God rewards. Say it again with me. God 
So you see why I'm saying God's name may not, may not be in the book of Esther, but he is all over this book. Because that night the king has a dream, and at the perfect time, only the Lord could do this. How many have a testimony of only the Lord? Perfect time, Haman comes strolling into the outer court, and when, the Haman, and when Haman responded to the king's question about who he should honor, he didn't even realize he was sealing his own fate because God sees, God knows, and God rewards. Church, hear me this morning. Let me get a little practical application to this. God sees every time you say no when the enemy wanted you to say yes. It may have been done in what you thought was secret. It may have been done in private. But God sees every time you say no when the enemy was offering you something and wanted you to say yes. Even with nobody else saw it. It's always easier, always easier to do the, the convenient thing or, or the comfortable thing or, or take the low place when no one else is watching rather than do the right thing. But God sees every time you choose right, even if it's in secret. God sees every time you say no to temptation. He sees when you say no to something that everyone else has said yes to. If everyone else around you, all of your friends have said yes, and you say no, God sees that. And the fact that when you stand for righteousness, you're not necessarily going to get applause from man. God sees that in you. But when everyone else has left you, and no one else is there to support you to do the right thing. There is still, thank God, there's still one more that goes with you and sees every single thing with you. Because I'm telling you today, God sees every time you say yes when everyone else is saying no. I'm telling you, single mom today, when you're exhausted, God sees every time that you get up in the morning with no one to help you, but you still take time to pray. God sees that when no one else does. Or you get to church, get yourself and those kids to church when you didn't think you could go one more step. You're exhausted from doing everything else by yourself. God sees that church when you do make a commitment to prayer. When, whatever it takes when there's a sacrifice for that. Even when you get bored with the basics of Christianity. That struck me the other day. So many in the church today are bored with the basics. And when I read the Word of God, so much of it looks basic to our Christian walk, our Christian understanding. It's easy to sometimes open the book and go, I know that, I've read that, I know that, I've read that. Oh, isn't there? No. God prevent us in this year of 2016 of ever being bored with the basics because we have this American sensationalist mentality that says we have to be tantalized with everything that takes place. We need a production for us. Even if prayer time gets to you gets boring, reading the Word gets boring to you, can I tell you God has called us to basics in our Christianity that we must never be bored with because He's never boring. And God saw, Mord saw Mordecai when he began to do the right thing because nothing escapes the eye of God. God sees. Not only does God see, but God knows. He knew exactly what happened back in chapter 2. He knows the perfect time. And he knows it's not time to honor Mordecai in 478 B.C. He knows it's time to honor him in 473 B.C. because God knows what he's doing. He knows his calendar. He knew when the parade was supposed to happen. Now think about this church, when the parade finally takes place five years later, it was right on time with God's calendar because not only was Mordecai on display, but so were all of the Jewish people were on display. And it was at that very event that won the children of Israel their, del their deliverance. If all Mordecai would have received was a thank you card in the mail back when it happened in 478, he might have framed it. He might have shown it to everybody who walked by. He might have been a proud moment to him. But it didn't happen that way because God knows more than we know. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen to you this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow and Tuesday. He knows which way your path is going to go. And so when God holds something back, or when God seems to be delayed to you, or the timing to you appears to be off according to your calendar, it's at that time you have to simply say, but God, you know better than I do. You know when this thing is supposed to take place, and I want it to take place in 478 B.C., but because I'm going to choose in this circumstance to trust you, I roll this off on you, and I commit it to you in the name of Jesus. Because church, stand strong in this today. God has not forgotten you. Somebody say, bless the Lord for that.
You know, God may say, well, it's going to be five years. It's going to be a sleepless night. i got to get Haman to be strolling around the outer court at just the right time. God knows all the right elements and the components of your life that have to fall right in place. God knew that a genocide was about to take place. He knew exactly what Haman was about to do. He knew that he needed to give the king a sleepless night, have Mordecai's act recorded in the chronicles. God knew all of that, orchestrated completely by the Lord. Have the people read the chronicles to the king that night. Have Haman rocking around the court at just the right time. When the king was ready to honor Mordecai was exactly the time God orchestrated for it to happen. We want to be honored within 24 hours, right? I did it, so... Let's, let's go ahead with the honor right now before everybody else forgets. But that's Americanism. That's not kingdom. In the kingdom of God, God has a completely different timetable for what he wants to do. And God is showing us as we look at the mirror of his word today that the reward does not always come when you think it should come. So often, when God withholds the applause, when God withholds the reward, when God withholds the check, when God withholds you being noticed, when God withholds the plaque, when God withholds you being on the stage, when God withholds you getting the microphone to sing, can I propose to you that it may be because God knows the perfect timing when that should come to you. Because it's not about, precious one, it's not about your parade. It's about how many people can be saved because of the timing of God. Because he's got a bigger plan, a bigger plan, and a better plan. And if we will learn to trust him, and I'm still in that school with you, if we will learn to trust him, he's got, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our, our thoughts. How many are thankful for that today? If Mordecai had received his parade in chapter 2, then the whole Jewish nation would have perished in chapter 6. But when God withholds and waits five years, five years, can you imagine Mordecai? I saved the king's life and no recognition. Let me give it to you straight, dear one. It's not about your parade, not about your plaque, not about your honor, not about your applause. There is such a bigger scheme that God is doing because God sees, God knows the exact time with what he's doing, and God rewards. He knows when to do it. He knows when this thing is supposed to happen for you. He knows exactly what he's doing. Do you remember me saying a few minutes ago, I'm almost done, if you're getting nervous, I'm almost done. How tall this pole was in which Haman wanted to impale Mordecai? How tall was it? Have you got any grasp on how tall 75 feet is? It's maybe twice the size of this ceiling here today. That's a tall pole. What can we conclude from that? That Haman wanted everyone to see that he was going to kill Mordecai. Now that's making a statement. But do you know who died on that pole? It wasn't Mordecai. Because when you read the end of the book, guess what happened to Mordecai? He became the prime minister with authority next to that of the king. Can I just propose to you today, and I hope you get this and apply this to your own life, only the Lord could do that. The older I get, the more life I live, the longer the, the journal gets on my story, there are so many more times that I can say only the Lord could have done that. When I thought I was in control of this and I thought I had a handle on this and I thought I had a handle on that, there is so much about our lives. Only the Lord could have orchestrated this. And Haman is impaled on the pole he had crafted for Mordecai because God knows how to reward Musicians come, and let's, let's finish here. He will reward righteousness, and he will eventually punish unrighteousness. But dear friend, I've said it, and I want you to hear it. It's not on your time. It's not on your clock, because God knows what he's doing. Say it again with me. God sees. God sees. One more time with a little more passion than that, please. How many of you believe what I've told you today is the truth? 
Just bow your heads with me for just a word of prayer. Today, Lord, we want it to be said of us that our trust is not in horses and chariots. Our trust today is not in the things that we can see. Oh, we are so prone to just trust in those things around us. Things that we feel like we can control. Things we've got to grasp on. Those of us who try to keep our ducks in a row. And even those whose ducks are swimming all around the pond. But Lord, our trust is not today in horses and chariots. But our trust is in the name of the Lord God Almighty. The one who made the heavens and the earth. So, Lord, as we are going to soon bring this year to a close and move to a year, new year, Lord, let us even now begin to come into a season of humbling ourselves before you, recognizing your authority in our lives, recognizing our total need of you in everything we do, and that in trusting you, Lord, we recognize that you see, you know, and you reward Lord, for so many in this room today, it's not even so much about being rewarded for something that they have done or wanting applause or wanting credit of man. Some people are of the persuasion that you've forgotten them, Almighty King, because their circumstances would tell them that because of what they see with their eyes, what they hear with their ears, what they touch with their hands. That's what they would think. So I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, that you will take the feebleness of my words and the weakness of my own presentation today, and by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit, you will pierce the hearts of people today with this simple message, God has not forgotten them. Those who need to hear that today, Lord, would you, by the power of the Holy Ghost, would you pierce that in them today? Those who are have lost hope, not even sure they can go on another step, not even sure why they should, let them be reminded today, God has not forgotten them. Your answers to them may be delayed, but Lord, give them the grace to trust you today, that in the mighty name of Jesus, they will stand upon the truth of your word, and their trust will be in you. Let's stand together, church. Prayer team, if you want to come, if you can come quickly, those of you can get, who can get quickly to the front here, I do want to open the altars for those of you who are going to say, you know what, Pastor, it doesn't matter if you've served the Lord your entire life, it doesn't matter if you've served the Lord for 30 days, it doesn't matter, that's not even the issue. You may be walking through a season that's known only to you and God, and that's okay, But you want someone to touch you and pray for you today in the name of Jesus because you want a big old dose of that hope. You want to be reminded that God has not forgotten you. And you want someone just to believe with you in Jesus' name.